Guilty on all three charges. Not justice, but accountability. A short-lived sigh of relief came across Minnesota and the entire country before news of a black teenager killed by police in Columbus, Ohio brought us back to reality. There's so much more work to be done. This is Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Metropolitan State University in Cultural Consulting. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Holly Lee, owner of The Other Media Group. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count two, third-degree murder perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to count three, second-degree manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk, Find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021 at 1.45 p.m. When I heard that reading, I'm uh, sitting on the couch at home, just me and my dog, Diggs. I heard the first, the first count, he said guilty. And I could just feel this wave welling up inside of me. So that by the time the judge read the third charge and I realized that he, as Chauvin, had just been found guilty on all three charges, these tears just started rolling out of my eyes. I mean, and I, I, you know, I can't describe, I've heard people talking about it on many uh, radio shows, you know, people, various individuals who have been interviewed. Um, it was just this kind of release. I could feel my body almost beginning to relax. I, starting starting from the death of my mother from COVID and then ending with this guilty on all three charges for show, it just felt like this whole year of stuff just kind of was oozing out. I'm sitting on the couch and I'm going, man, I can't believe this. I just, you know, I'm just, I, there's no stopping these tears, this, and it wasn't, I, I just can't explain it. I can't describe it, but it took about probably a good half hour. I mean, I sat and I was watching all the subsequent with, uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison and his whole team. And then I watched uh, Ben Crump and, and the Floyd family and that entire. Th and then they, you know, they were switching between downtown and the memorial on, on 38th and, and uh, Chicago. And, you know, and during that entire time, whenever they would play a clip of the judge reading those um, charges, I would start up all over again. It was, I mean, and I was like that. What what time did that happen? That happened about between three thirty and four. Well, no, it was after four o'clock. It was actually like four oh eight or four oh nine when they finally read those charges. Mara got home from work probably about twenty to six, and I was just finally starting to recuperate a little bit. If you if you can call it that. That's the kind of impact 
that verdict had. Just not me, personally. Yeah, when I heard that they were announcing it, I mean, they had told us they were announcing it, and then they gave a couple of hours, right? So around one or so, they said we, there was a verd- verdict, and we will read it between 3.30 and 4. So at 3.30, I'm on the couch. I've got the TV on, and when it took them until 4 or 8 or whatever, I was freaking out. <laughs> I kept saying to my husband, who was with me, and he's so he's such an optimistic, happy person, you know, and he just kept saying, justice is going to be served. Don't worry. Don't, and I was like, you don't know that. We, we all think it's so obvious, but we, we cannot guess what the jury is going to come out with. And, you know, everybody, all the uh, experts were saying, if they come, if the jury comes back quickly, that's good news. But then when there was that long half hour wait, which seemed like so long to me, I was thinking, oh, my God, what if this means that they're trying to find an escape route for Chauvin, right? That he's going to walk out of that courthouse. And I was freaking out. I was an emotional mess. I was very fortunate that I had a four o'clock meeting. My client, a white man, emailed me and said, I don't think we can have this meeting today. We need to just postpone. And I was like, thank you for saying that because I forgot I had the meeting when I heard the news was coming. And I, I remember um, emailing and texting all of you guys. And Anthony, you said, I'm going to be done at George Fox Square in half an hour. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so... So I got to George Floyd Square, and, and part of the reasoning is because I'm part of the um, a group of chaplains, a group of, of clergy who have been gathering to provide support throughout all of the demonstrations throughout this whole process. And so we actually had on-call, you know, plans to say, if the on decision day, this is when we, time we're going to meet up and stuff like that. And so I was en route um, because I knew that that was my station, and there was some of us stationed at the, uh, at the government center in addition to the coverage team for the racial reckoning project. And so I was also going to be meeting some of the uh, young reporters there as well. When I got there, it was all reporters and maybe a handful of community folks. So I was just, I was like, okay. And so slowly folks began to trickle. And what happened was um, we, I was gathered with some of the other chaplains with um, Reverend Gia Starr Brown of First Covenant, downtown Minneapolis and, and, her, and her wife and a few other folks. And we had been talking, you know, her, her wife was crying. In fact, if, if a lot of the uh, national coverage focused in, like these folks just at the moment she started was tears and she was breathing hard and she, like this anxiety was building up in this group of folks. All of a sudden these cameras started showing up. We had to kind of push them out and let, said, let her give her some space. But when it got time, I called my wife and I checked to see where she was. And she said, they're reading it right. She's about to start reading it right now. This is about, uh, I called her at 4.04 and about 4.05, she said, they're about to start reading it. So I said, all right, I hurry up and hang up with her. And nobody else had their phones out. And so I heard, I just put my phone out and everybody crowded around my phone. And then all of these reporters from all of the news agencies just crowded around us. And then we heard the first count. We didn't hear the second two. So this is actually the first time that I heard the second two. Uh, We only heard the first one. And the first one hit and we just began shouting and, and, and Gia's wife hit the ground and started crying and said, finally, finally. And we were all had this moment, like finally we could breathe. Right. And then we, and then we look up and, there's just cameras around us and we're like, back up, like get, get out my face right now. This isn't this, this ain't, this moment ain't for y'all. Right. And it was, it was powerful. The problem, the problem was 
that moment of happiness of saying, finally, what we knew we saw was being validated by our legal system. To your point, plea, you know, when it, for all the folks who are like, it's going to be okay. And I'm like, look, our past history has not proven that. We have had all the data. We've had the, we've had all the best candidates for justice and it hasn't happened. So why should I believe this one, right? Who knew that the Vikings mm-hmm. would be good training for us? So we knew that, that, this is this is this is ne- wasn't necessarily going to be the outcome, but when it was, my moment of happiness was so small, because the moment we got done and we were getting ready for the prayer vigil, we got the news from Ohio, hmm. and it, and and a constant reminder that you know while this moment is good, or this moment feels good, this is like step point zero zero one on a long road of things that need to change because you know it, this shouldn't be historic. So all of those things set in almost immediately afterwards and took all of the joy feel out the room when you had to reset and get regrounded. So that, that's how I saw it in George Floyd square. Wow. You know, that, uh, incident you, you just mentioned in, uh, from Columbus, Ohio. I remember, um, them breaking in during all this to broadcast that that young 16 year old black girl had been shot and killed by, police in Columbus, Ohio, you throw that on top of uh, Dante Wright being shot and killed while we're, you know, closing the trial Mm -hmm. of Chauvin, right? I mean, here, again, in Minnesota, you're so right, Anthony, because in that moment, even though there was this release this release of trauma. For me, it was trauma. It was this accumulated trauma. Because if you remember, I sat out in, in one of our recent episodes because it, it was getting mm-hmm. to me. I mean, my my body physically reacts eventually. Uh, I get upset stomachs. And uh, so this release is short-lived because we know, yeah, okay, we, we got this in this trial with, with Chauvin. And yet my mind immediately went back to three, four years ago when we got the devastating news that Giannis was found innocent, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that one, I had invested a lot of my time and energy here with the city of Roseville, with the mayor, with uh, city council and other concerned community members, because that incident involving Philando was right down the street. Roseville police were there. They showed up. It was right on the border, Falcon Heights and Roseville. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one was, you know, all these are close to home, but that one is real close to home. And I live in Roseville. Whenever I did see a Roseville cop had someone pulled over, it was always a black person. And there ain't but six of us, I don't know, maybe eight or, you know what I'm saying, in Roseville. Um, but, but I'm, you know, and of course I'm lying. There's, there's more. There, there are more than that. But so from the disappointment of that verdict to this one with Chauvin, it's like that all that was kind of released just to have that breaking news cut in with, oh, my God, another white officer just shot and killed another black child. And, and, and it's a complicated one, right? Like, it could, 
This oh, is what changed God. up my whole game plan. I was supposed to bring a prayer about a celebration um, that justice was done. That was the prayer that I was supposed to pray on the chaplain program in the prayer vigil at George Floyd Square and could not do it. Had to throw it completely out because of the feeling that was in the space, right? And and even the celebratory mood, one of the other, the, the pastor MC, Gia Starr, uh, Reverend Gia Star Brown had to at one point just tell the crowd just do self-care uh, body work and just tell the crowd scream and release it right to the point where the guys there's a couple of brothers behind me who who were like man I didn't know how much I needed that like it, it was it was we were still having to self-care knowing that the moment had passed and we've got all this other work to do and now that the the rebuttals coming right the societal rebuttal is coming the societal rebuttal that says, good, now y'all can shut up and go back to business as usual. Now you can be, so I had to end up changing my prayer to one of covering. And 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 that's not an easy shift to do because there's some preparation to do that because you got to be able to set yourself aside and think it's similar to switching from just a praise service <laughs> to pastoral care. And so I had to, to, to remake a prayer on the spot of covering because all these people are about to leave this place and take their celebration back to what I'm going to call dominant cultural space, which is going to minimize. It's going to it's going to give all the reasons why, you know, uh, to your point earlier about why is he convicted of all of these counts? It's going to have rebuttals. It's going to have statements from police federations who are saying, I hope we can get back to, to coming together and being able to to have real conversation as if we haven't been having real conversations. Right. Mm -hmm. This idea mm -hmm. that that. Um, holding somebody accountable is somehow being political. What Attorney General Keith Ellison said, I've been struggling with because I've been trying to find, go back to celebration mode, but he was so right. We, justice wasn't served, accountability was served. Mm -hmm. Accountability, exactly. Yes. Well, you know, many of us remember, I remember watching- Are you talking about in 92, Rodney King? Yeah, Rodney, yep. and we watched those police officers on someone, you know, someone had the, their video camera just beat this man sen senseless, and he was found, and they were all uh, found innocent, right? And so, um, and that's not counting all the other countless times, and or, you know, or just when we think about our own personal experiences with police, you know, I'm grew up in Minneapolis and my first encounter with Minneapolis police, I'm 16, 17 years old, walking down Nicollet Avenue because we're so poor, I ain't got money to hop the damn bus. So I'm walking to downtown Minneapolis and I'm on about 20, 22nd and Nicollet. So I got a ways to go, right? Before I hmm. hit downtown. And a squad car pulls up and two white officers come out and they walk up to me and ask me my name, um, ask me, you know, my age, ask me where I was going. And, you know, so I told them all that. And so they said, well, you know, can we see your ID? And then I looked at them and I said, well, why? Well, you know, we, we're just checking. I said, checking on what? They said, well, do you have your ID? I said, no, man, I'm in high school. How, how many high school kids do you know <laughs> carry their damn ID, right? They said, well, we can take you downtown and hold you for 72 hours until you prove who you are. I said, this is America. Why, why do I, when do you stop us and just ask for an ID and then threaten me 
by saying, you know, we can take you downtown for 72 hours if you can't prove who you are. That was my first run-in with Minneapolis Police Department. The last run-in I had, I got pulled over by two squad cars and they pulled their guns out, pulled me out of my car, had me spread out, spread eagle against my car and then like three other cars pull up and all these guys, all these officers, white officers, and this is in North Minneapolis, mm -hmm. uh, with their guns drawn, held me there for about 10 minutes. Another guy walked up. I thought he was like an undercover officer. He said a few words to him and then they all put their guns away, hopped in their cars and as they're leaving, no, nothing to me, they haven't said anything to me, so I have to ask. Hmm. You know, what was this all about? And, uh, oh, well, we had a report that uh, two black guys were stealing stereos in the neighborhood, and one of them had on a gray top, and I had on a gray sweatshirt. So I looked at them, and I said, so if you had a report like this in Edina about two white boys stealing stereos, and one of them had on a gray top, would you pull over every car that had two white guys in it? And they just kind of looked at me and told me, well, you can leave. Hmm and hopped in their car and, and drove off. A lot of people I've seen online saying stuff like, um, you know, he shouldn't have tried to flee the police about Dante Wright, or she shouldn't oh, have yeah. had a knife, right, um, about the young lady in Ohio, um, the child, she was a child, okay? She was 16 years old, she was a child saying stuff like, oh, she shouldn't have had a knife or Dante shouldn't have been running from police. But when you have had these encounters like you just described, Don, and the stories that I've heard from you, Anthony, when you've had these encounters over and over with police, the compliance is not the issue, right? Like that, that does not, is not the issue. And that's what people keep picking apart is like, oh, they weren't complying, they weren't complying. And that's the part that that really gets me. If if Ritter House or whatever his name is, who shot, you know, who had a a gun wrapped like wrapped around his chest, shooting people, if he can walk away unharmed, then why can't a sixteen year old girl with a knife so have that same? It's 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 and it's it's the catch twenty two that we keep talking about, right? What you just brought out requires nuance requires actual deep thought. And it's way too easy for me to um, disregard a nuanced conversation for simplistic sound bites that don't require, like, that don't require, you know, factual comparison. And it's too easy for me to do that. You just brought up something that actually speaks to three separate issues. One, this false assumption of compliance, right? Two, the false equivalence of compliance, because compliance has not meant that people of color lived and compliant and non-compliance has exactly. not meant that white folks um, are, are treated the same way. So you, you pointed that out. <laughs> and then the third one exactly. you were pointing out our standard of what should re what should require force and what we expect of our police officers, you know, which is in and of itself a very nuanced conversation because there are nations across the world who encountering, who one, don't encounter, get, have to encounter nearly the, the violent encounters that we have in, in our nation that we have to talk about. And two, are able to do it without being issued guns in the same way, and yet their results are very different. So it's not like we can't, it's not like we can't, th these problems aren't solvable. 
our issue is that we are unwilling to and 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 don't even and, and, and want to completely disregard the fact that it doesn't have to be like this. You know, Mars been with me so long that story broke of a white male who had assaulted, I think, a colleague at work. The police respond. He gets in, he flee, he's fleeing the scene in his pickup Oh, that's truck, in Minnesota. Right? Yeah. And the cop jumps on the cab, the side, you know, the driver's side as he's driving away. So he's driving away with a police officer hanging on to his truck and then later assaults the police officer with a hammer. Hits hits the police officer with a hammer and he's arrested. And Mara turned and she looked at me and she said, if he was black, as soon as that cop jumped on that truck, he would have been shot. In fact, as soon as he got in the truck, he would have been, I mean, he, I'm he just, wouldn't you know, have gotten into the going, truck. Hey, that's what I'm saying. I started trying to go back. And that's what's so disheartening about this whole, I, I think this whole thing is the fact that while so many of us felt this release, this release of trauma that's been built up and rightfully so, this was for a verdict for us just to kind of, for the first time, kind of get back to this even or somewhat even playing field of just being treated like our white counterparts, right? I mean, think about, I mean, it's just, it's just our, you know, and, and when I was listening to Ellison and with all these other people, and especially with uh, George Floyd and their family, and they were just talking about the fact that you know, this verdict was one for humanity and, and and accountability. I mean, we're just asking to be treated like equals to our white brethren. And um and and the fact that we have this kind of reaction on a on on a case that seemed so obvious, so obvious, but we've been mm -hmm. there before. We've seen right. obvious we, and they've been acquitted each time. And so that's why we're scared. That's why we well, were scared. <laughs> I think a fear comes up to me and anxiety comes up for me just hearing this in front of me. Because, you know, when you when you talk, when you actually engage in dialogue that's nuanced and, and looking at multiple, um, you know, so, uh, uh, unpacking the different things that are coming out, as you all are talking, um, the thing that's coming up for me that's causing me to go back into this, okay, we still got so much work to do, is the fact that does it mean that I have to have, and, and, and I'm going to speak to the courage of the witnesses in a second, but does that mean that in order for justice to be done, we have to have video and mm. witnesses and, yeah. and, and for the first time ever, folks, groundbreaking um, crossing that blue, the, the quote unquote blue line or blue wall or whatever for police to, to condemn their own. Like, does it have to be this egregious in order to get some semblance of justice or for folks to get to, to for accountability, not justice, right? Like justice would be George Floyd not still being alive with us. You know, so, exactly. so there's, there's that piece that comes up to me again, like, you can call this whatever kind of win you want. And there are folks who are very happy to call this a super win so that they can put this down for a second and not think about all the other things that need to change and continue to change in this country. But as I hear you talk, that's, that's creeping back into me. You know what makes me sad 
even I mean, and and this is and and this is the complex emotional response that so many of us are going through. So while I'm having this release of this trauma that's been building up, a part of me is still keenly aware that Native Americans are mm-hmm. killed at a higher rate, as higher rate if not higher than African Americans by white police officers. And it's still unspoken of. It, we, it's not covered in the media. Mm-hmm. It uh, nothing. You know what I mean. And so while there's this, you know, while we have this moment of accountability for George Floyd and hopefully for African Americans in this country, uh, one step toward accountability. We still have. I we still have this reckoning. For our uh, indigenous, you know, from the native side of me, for our indigenous populations, where we still don't even make the news mm. when we get killed, and I'm—it's not—I'm not trying to damper any of this. It's the fact that we're so invisible that we don't even make the news when this happens to us, and it happens to us at higher rates, and not just by police, but basically, uh, the highest rate of death in the American Indian community is murder. Mm. And it's not by us. That depth and complexity that requires, Don, you to, to connect a bunch of dots in a society where, where, where folks can, can flip the news and say, okay, that happened. Right? There's those of us who can't flip the news and say, okay, that happened because we are part of the community affected. And, and, and to underscore and unpack the nuance even worse, uh, you know, Don, we, we, we did a series on missing and murdered women that won a, nas- a National Black Journalist mm. Award, right? Pulling out some of these nuances and pulling out some of these, these, these atrocious numbers. It shows how difficult it is to have a conversation in a dominant society space mm-hmm. that doesn't have the connections or the nuance or the relationships with the communities affected in a way that make it so that I can't, I, I don't get to ter- turn around and take a breath from, is the notion that the very invisibility that you talk about whenever we, you bring up the fact that uh, Native peoples and studies are, are looked at as statistically insignificant, right? Means, mm-hmm. let's just let the dice roll out as they are. We've had public, public carnage on black and brown bodies that have almost created mm-hmm. this, this, this trauma porn to the point where that is expected. But because we've marginalized the community so much in terms of the native community space, now the things that, wow, I can't believe I'm saying this. The things, the the carnage wrought on black bodies is now, (laughs) in this case, working in our favor. Mm. And Mm. because of the, how we have treated native community spaces, Something that, I mean, just just that is just mind-boggling yeah. to me. What what makes it frustrating, even additionally frustrating, because you named some of these other variables involved in terms for us to have these discussions or to move forward, because we have to move forward, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there are there are efforts now, you know, the, this call to have the FBI. Mm-hmm come in and 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 look at uh you know Minneapolis uh police department you know the uh attorney general for uh 
the United States announced that, you know, they're going to now do an investigation. Separate from the FBI, you know, the Department of Justice is going to come in now and, and investigate uh, Minneapolis Police Department to see if they uh, have been um, have been violating civil rights of African Americans. And, you know, <laughs> we know they have. But, you know, they're going to come in and, and do this investigation separate from the civil rights investigation that they're doing just for George Floyd. So there is this additional attention finally coming in. But let's, but you know, it's not just a Minnesota, it's not just a Minneapolis issue. No, this is nationwide, but they're only focusing on MPD, right? I mean, you know, with these announcements, they're only focusing on, in, on, on Minneapolis Police Department, but we know it's systemic, mm-hmm. it's systemic mm-hmm. wide. And, you know, my the comment I was, I guess I was trying to make is that what makes this additionally frustrating is that the very culture that we have to engage with in order to make these systemic changes have individual, key individuals in these positions of power that are at various levels of how do we say being woke? Consciousness. Um, Consciousness, you know, understanding. I mean, you know, and that's always been our problem is that we can have some individuals who understand the nuances of what's happening here, but yet we'll get bogged down in a mire of individuals who don't get it. So, you know, we're going to have to deal with with all these folks who are, okay, you know, much like when Barack Obama was elected president, oh, my God, we've reached nirvana. Mm-hmm. We no longer have a race right. issue. Many are going to see this verdict in the same mm-hmm. light that, oh, you know, we elected a black president. Now we convicted a white cop. We're there, right? I mean, all you need to hear that why this pain keeps coming back and maybe why it's a good thing that the federal government is investigating Minneapolis first is the statement from the Police Officers Federation of Minneapolis that came out on April 20th after um, the verdict. And I'll just read to you the second paragraph where it says, there are no winners in this case and we respect the jury's decision. We need the political pandering to stop and the race baiting of elected officials to stop. In addition, we need to stop the divisive comments, and we all need to do better to create a Minneapolis we love. Wow. I mean, <laughs> they're trying well, to spin this in like, and like uh, we all love our city, right? So why are you guys trying to divide? But then that the whole we need to stop the political pain, and this is like a you know two and a half paragraph statement that really says nothing except that. They feel like we're race-baiting elected officials. Well, and keep in mind that in conversations about accountability, race-baiting is a dog whistle that's used. It's not, a, it's not an unstrategic use. It's a, it's a, it is a dog whistle that is used to do attempt to derail, again, arguments that ask us to lean into real nuance and data. Let's be clear. Let's be, let's be extremely clear that the data backs up all of the policies for change, period. There, there is no factual basis. There is a, a sense of feeling, big air quotes, of that something may change and upset the, you know, my 
comfortable or my comfort space as it is. But but one, there's very little proof that that is that actually is true. That actually happens. That 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 that'll upset. This, you know, the, the policies being put forward have very little effect on many of the folks who are opposing the very policies that are coming forward. Right. But Anthony, let ahead. me ask you something. FBI, yeah. my knowledge and understanding of history concerning the FBI is that they purposely discredited destroyed and killed the Black Panther Party. They purposely discredited, destroyed, and tried to destroy Martin Luther King. Down the line, the FBI has been used to keep us in line. So what happened now that I can trust the FBI is going to come in here when did the shift in the FBI happen where we are no longer the ones? I, I, I was, you know, as a Native American, I was with uh, AIM, right? On a trip when I was younger, we were in uh, North Dakota. And as soon as we crossed back into Minnesota, the FBI pulled us over. How do we, when, when did the FBI shift from seeing us as, uh, as uh, help me here, I'm just, I'm just as oh, so. Don, as a professor, you're, you're doing exactly the thing that gets us into extreme <laughs> trouble, and that is, you ask a question that requires too much nuance and critical thinking and comparison stuff, right? Because there is a moment, there is a direct shift where, and and and, and I want to, I want to go back and unpack that a little bit, right? Because we do yeah. have the release documents under Co of of COINTELPRO, the FBI program that was a re the initiative that did a lot of what you said, but also began right. un unfair and, and interruptive practices on some of the non-Black, Brown, and Indigenous groups that were coalescing. One of the things that made Fred, Fred Hampton particularly scary is that he was coalescing folks in neighborhoods inclusive of folks who had racially prejudicial views, but similar suspicions around uh, the control of community and was actually building <laughs> coalitions interracially. And so, um, you know, so, so that suspicion of that is definitely something that has some, some historical record. But we have also seen at the same time, and it's tough to hold it in there because it doesn't tell as tight and neat a story, um, that there have been other leaders of the FBI who have broken the mold, right? Who have broken the stories wide open of rings that were preying on black, brown, and indigenous communities and sexual stings. There is this marred track record that definitely raises some, some suspicion. And so it's worth a whole lot of conversation around where those shifts have happened and why we should trust this. But I think it also, to Don, to your point, tells an interesting story that if these if our communities have had that level of distrust of the FBI and yet are calling for the FBI to come in that should tell you something about our level of trust in our local authority and so it's a complicated story and it's mm -hmm. and, and it requires it's going to require so much more depth of thought that does not work in simple non-nuanced sound bites it's just like um, though. It's just like the statements of um, defund the police, right? This idea that there are folks in our communities who have said, "Look, we have very little trust in anything that you would piece together of this current system, and we want to have new dialogues about what a whole new imagination of how we do public safety could look like." 
All right. We get so stuck on defund, support police, not support the police, that there's no room or oxygen for imagining something completely different that meets this new world that we're living in. That's the thing that frustrates me the most. Yeah. But that's because it's driven by fear, by our dominant culture folk. It's like Walt's calling in the National Guard and then all these businesses boarding up their, their businesses and the National Guard, I mean, I'm driving down Central Avenue over here in Northeast Minneapolis, not far from where I live, and there's National Guard on every corner. And I'm thinking, what the hell are they doing over here? I mean, you know, I drove down Lake Street, this, the epicenter of, of uh, where the 3rd Precinct used to be. There wasn't a single National Guard out there. So I figured, okay, so they've got the, the National Guard distributed in areas to protect property but to protect property and businesses of white folks. The guard were called in to protect them from us. So, right? As activists are trying to get downtown to the government center to hear that verdict, businesses released their employees and there was gridlock and a exodus mm-hmm. leaving downtown Minneapolis of our counterparts, our, our white colleagues, getting the hell out of Dodge because they were scared to death. The whole, it, it again, the response in our community was divided. And so you have one side who's fearful and you have another side who, you know, we're all holding our collective breath, but this played out. It was covered in the news. They were showing, they showed shots of uh, Interstate 35W <laughs> South and that thing was bumper to bumper. Hmm of folks getting the hell out of Dodge, uh, you know, afraid of what was going to happen. So so we weren't the only it, ones again, uh, that weren't sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the entire state was unsure. Exactly. The entire country was unsure. The oh, entire God, world exactly. was unsure. There was a reporter from Copenhagen at the at George Floyd Square who, when the verdict was, 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 was I watched her face go, all right. <laughs> and it was this look of surprise like, oh, Oh, okay. Now we we have a we we're we're gonna go with that line of questioning and stories because we weren't sure. Isn't that a sad state of affairs? That you could you could murder a man on camera like that and not be sure that something's gonna be held accountable. The fact that the whole world mm. had no idea if there would be justice for black people in the United States. Think about that. Of what you just mm. said. The whole world was watching. No one no one thought the revolution would start in Minnesota except for Prince. Yeah. <laughs> I saw I saw that mm-hmm. article. <laughs> I have to somebody here has to put some optimism, right? That's not and me. I'm the last one. <laughs> I'm the last one who's going to who's going to bring some optimism here. But here's here's a crack in the facade that I saw. Go ahead, let me let me go ahead and put my professor voice on. Now that we are here, there is some real tangible policy changes. And so just in case, you know, you know, folks are encountering those who are like, well, what is wrong with the police? If you just do this and all that, and that's, oh, we'll have those conversations to a blue in the face for those of us who can be blue in the face. One of the things that I think is shifting, the way I see it, is giving up on this notion that, um, or letting go of this false notion, right? This American mythos that, upheavals and change happens through compliance. This is something that I 
actually see as a bright spot. Because nothing in this country has changed. You know, uh, uh, Frederick Douglass said it best, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has. It never will. He also criticized the, the U.S. government by saying that we do wrong by choice and right by necessity. And so something has to produce necessity. And I think that um, we, we are starting to move a corner like many other countries, right? And it doesn't have to be huge and chaotic, but it can definitely be uncomfortable. There has to be some discomfort. And I think conversations are starting to come back online about many of the levers that can be pulled. We would have never had the attention on these unarmed killings by police if there was not pressure on the protest side and the, on the demonstration side, if folks weren't concerned, right? If folks weren't pushing our governor to have to, to feel like he has to put into a place this plan, it, it, it brings the kind of attention. And that is what we learned in the civil rights movement. King wasn't just marching hand in hand for some altruistic. No, it was to make a very public spectacle of the ridiculousness on the ground to make and force a conversation that folks who are incrementalists did not want to have. Remember when he was assassinated, he was persona non grata because he started to dip into pockets. I'm starting to see the mm. kind of coalitions that says, what levers can be pulled to put pressure on a system like this? How do we mask that power? How do we not forget the Asian folks who were killed um, um, in those shootings next to the native folks who keep going missing, next to the transgender folks who are murdered and missing and nothing happens, next to the black folks who are being killed and unarmed and uh, use of force questions. Like we're starting to see these things coalesce into conversations about what levers can we pull? How do we make it uncomfortable? At some point, protests are going to get old. And so now I'm start, starting yeah. to see folks go, okay, what financial levers can I pull? What investments can I, can I, can I make? How do we calculate all of these? Now, all of a sudden, we start having a multitude of strategies that, are, that let folks know that this, this country is not going to move forward economically, socially, in terms of world status. We've talked about that before in, in some of our previous podcasts in terms of money. Mm -hmm. And, and money talks, you know, we saw that out of Georgia mm -hmm. after they passed those restrictive uh, voting voting laws. Not only more and more uh, restrictive voting rights, but now we're seeing legislation being passed by states to restrict protesting. In Florida. Yep. Right. Legislation and, passed I in mean, Florida. We know that they were even pushing that here. A bill, uh, a bill that would strip away your ability to receive state funding for college and things like that. Yeah, I mean, we're so we're seeing how they're gearing up to put things in place to make our ability to stand up and fight for our humanity illegal. During one of the press conferences yesterday, and I don't remember who said this, it might have been somebody in Ben Crump's team um, who said, you know, you have to listen to the people. And if you don't, we'll see you at the ballot boxes. Oh, that was at actually... Well, I don't know if that was, yeah. there were several press conferences, so I'm getting them confused, but one of them was about um, making the, trying to help shift and gear folks up for the continued fight. Right. That was said, not only that, but also calling out um, President Biden and, and Vice President Harris saying, you ran on this and they used specific sound bites. And what they started to tee up was this notion that many of folks in communities of color have had forever, but it might not be known to dominant culture, this, that the marriage to a particular political party comes itself with some nuance, right? And so they called out the fact that just because some folks have taken a positive language listen approach, <laughs> 
um, in certain dominant parties do not count, do not expect. Um, and it was the head of the NAACP in Minneapolis who brought up the notion and the fact that while we may, while we may ascribe black voters more to the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, they reminded us first and foremost, um, and it was, it was, it was Jelani Hassan from, from CARE, but the, the, the party of Lincoln is the party of the freed slaves. Even though we know the political shifts that have happened over time, they said, look, don't get it twisted. We are for whoever's going to start making the policy shifts. And, and it was the head of the NAACP who brought up the, note, the fact that while black voters broke more for Democrats in these recent elections, the vast majority of black voters chose not to vote at all. And so mm. they, they did what we, what we don't necessarily talk about as much, and that is there are healthy and real critiques of all of our political parties. And so this idea that somehow racial discourse is political, it may be political in that when you deal with people and power, politics is there, but not in terms of party. We have healthy critiques of both. And they, they gave a warning. They gave a very clear warning that, that this is a moment to, 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 to show. And I think it was an open moment for both of our political parties to say the party that begins to, to, to come to the table for real reform in these areas is a party that can see some real support in these areas. And I think that is a shot across the bow for our political system. I mean, for me, when I heard mm. that, I just said, if, you know, if we can get to the polls, huh. right? I mean, there's so much the voter, voter suppression, suppression yeah. happening. And then, you know, when we say, we'll see you at the polls, then they go, well, we'll just make it so you can't get to the polls. Right. And so that was my this is not the optimistic thing we wanted to end on, like you <laughs> well, said. So like but, I said, I'm not the one to be optimistic right now. But but, but let's be clear. But we got the reality of yes. what's happening, though, in this country. Yes. And let's be clear. I mean, our history of voter you know, suppression is not specific to one particular party. And any right. exactly we have a history in this country of regardless of political party, if things aren't going well in your favor, you are in favor of more restrictive voting rights for the other person. That's been true throughout our entire history. I just don't want to I don't want to let anybody off the hook. <laughs> well, you know, I think it, an easier a layman's a layman's way to describe that is right now in our political posture. The Republican Party would remind me of being down south where it's open in your face. You know exactly where it's coming from. And the Democratic Party is a lot like Minnesota nice. <laughs> and that's the best way that I can put it. And that, that was what was on display at the at the press conference. Exactly. And, and, and so, you know, and you've heard me on previous shows, you know, as, as people of color, we're voting for the lesser of two evils. This is one of the cracks in the facade that I'm starting to see, though. I'm hoping. Because some of the most, some of the richest dialogues that I've had have been folks who identify very differently politically than me, or at least have less of a critique of both parties as I have, right? But, but these are folks who have also had negative experiences. When I talk to my friends and my family who are in West Virginia and Mississippi who, who you know, were poor like we were growing up and, and, and still live in that space, they also are recounting, maybe not as egregious in terms of the outcome, but they're also recounting negative en encounters with police officers and this challenging this notion of compliance. And, and I see a moment of coalescing. I saw folks on the ground the other day in George, uh, George Floyd Square who are very different 
sides of the aisle politically from other folks or from the folks we'd expect to be at George Floyd who agreed that this was egregious. Like, like there was no, right. there, there, so I, I just, I do absolutely see for folks who are willing to put on the, the, their, their, their big kid pants and, and start to just really allow for the nuance to be there, that there are some, in a similar way that if you take a list of demands from inner city areas across the country and you take a list of demand from very rural areas, they may have different orders in the way that things show up on the list, but the lists look very similar. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I, I think that that is the, the silver lining that I can grab to here is I absolutely do. If we can, <laughs> if we can keep momentum and put, I'm going to say this and it's going to make your faces crunch up a little bit, but what you read in the, in the police, in the police Federation response while I understand its impetus is not necessarily constructive in the way that I'm about to say, the, the zoomed out viewpoint that I can glean from that about having a new conversation, if that is really at the essence, we're at a moment where a new conversation can be had, but it's going to require nuance. It's going to require us thinking about and making decisions, being willing to enter into discourse in ways that say, at least that's not my experience, but I trust yours because you're the one that lives it. If I can get somebody to do that, the opportunities that open up are amazing. But that's not easy work to do. I mean, I, what do you say after that? I mean, I would, I mean, this has been one of our, you know, counter stories, counter stories. Mm-hmm. I would like to end by thanking. I would like to end by thanking Darnella Fraser. Mm. I like because that. Because the witnesses. And the witnesses, because mm. we would not be here without them, with this historic verdict. And it impacted all of us. And it impacted all of us slightly differently. It doesn't mean justice. But without Darnella, without the other witnesses, without the people coming forward to testify, we wouldn't have this verdict. And so I think we need to acknowledge the brave the bravery of a teenage girl to hold that camera to hold her phone and capture this because without that who knows mm. what story would be coming up you know with with the, with the death of George Floyd well the story or the press release that came out immediately after that happened is a suspect dies in medical around medical conditions right. while being apprehended and uh we know how far from the truth that was. And, you know, she taught all of us. I think um, what stands out is not just Darnella Frazier, but her, but her, her niece, mm-hmm. Judea, wearing a, a, green a green shirt that says love on it. Mm. Got to see her family do what, what needed to be done to bear witness and say, we're not, gonna, we're not looking away. We are, we are mm. watching. And, and if nothing else changes, I think the country knows right now that we's watching. Wow, this has been Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, Associate Professor at Social Work at Metropolitan State University. Anthony Galloway, Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora and Senior Partner at Dendro's Group. And I'm Halili, owner of the other media group. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Amphers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.